This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 42 of the Gallon Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139335. Today is Thursday, July 14th, 2016. We appreciate that you're all here with us tonight. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. Tonight, we are going to do a rerun of episode 15, which was from a banker, a retired banker and broker, uh, Scott and uh, the reason for that is uh, the Goose has been involved in some deep research with uh, some additional bankers and retired uh, banking professionals over the past couple weeks. Unfortunately, the guest that we were going to have for this evening had to fly to Washington, D.C. So we are going to have them on next week. And upon reviewing our previous phone calls, we thought that this one would be a really good primer to get everybody ready to think about the information that we're going to bring to you guys next week. So, uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. 
Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number, 139-335, and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose. Remember, everybody, justice should be blind, not you. You are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinningcourt.com slash win slash goose. And for those of you who have been plagued with collectors or court cases messing with your credit scores, please remember to go to www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit scores and credit damage. So, without further ado, let's uh, review our interview from episode 15. And uh, for all those on the call, please know that we will uh, open up the... uh, the board for further questions and answers and comments at the end of this recording. All right, and here we go. Tonight, we have a very special guest who is a recent expatriate from 17 years in the mortgage banking industry. Scott started out as an escrow agent doing closings, then advanced mortgage loan officer, processor, underwriter, branch manager, mortgage broker, and loss mitigator for the banks. Interestingly, he was quoted as saying, Looking back on my career, I don't believe any mortgage closing that I was ever involved in was ever consummated. Tonight, Scott will be covering some areas relating to lack of disclosure and consideration, substitution of two mortgage contracting partners, unfunded loan agreements, non-existing trusts, securitization of your notes and bifurcation of the security interest, and how to identify and prove the non-existence of the so-called trust named in an assignment which may be coming after you for close. But first, let's recap some recent headlines that are going on in the world of foreclosure and homeowners. Another interesting story was uh, the law firm of Matt Widener, Widener Law, uh, has a headline as just scoring two big foreclosure wins already here in 19, in, uh, 19 listen to me, 2016. It's just two working days in the 2016, and Widener Law has already scored two major foreclosure victories, a trial court win, and just today, a critical win from Florida's Second District Court of Appeals from the Bank of New York Mellon versus Richard L. Jacobs. Widener's website has PDF files for download with the full text of the written opinions from the appellate court. It's comprised of nearly three words. They are per curiam affirmed. So why are those three simple words so fantastic? Because they already won at trial, and the appellate court affirmed their win by simply asserting that they were correct. Please go over there and check it out. It's very cool. On the sour side of things, Multnomah County in Oregon sued the big banks and MERS and then accepted a $9 million settlement exchange for saying that they would now accept the MERS recordings as being real. This is a big problem because this bypasses the Oregon State Legislature, which establishes which documents must be and how they must be recorded. Multnomah County is a small county east of uh, Portland, and is simply putting its own stamp of approval on fraudulent documents without the consent of the state legislature. A contract to commit an illegal activity is void and unenforceable. No county is ever authorized to make policy decisions like that. 
So the big question is, where is the Oregon Attorney General to defend the state legislature? Moving on to some happy news in Hawaii, the Hawaii Appellate Court Taylor decision was effective. In the, in the Intermediate Court of Appeals of Hawaii, case number CAAP-14-0001018, decided on December 28th, U.S. Bank lost another one. As expected, the appellate court was timid, although it was very emphatic on the standing under Justinowski. So in this case, the court overturned virtually everything done by the trial court judge and remanded the case for further proceedings consistent with Jozanowski. The rescission was indeed effective without a lawsuit by operation of law, leaving no loan contract, no note, and no mortgage for the plaintiff to operate under. It'll be very interesting to see how that shakes out. All right, ladies and gents, uh, let's welcome former mortgage banker and uh, all-around good doer, Scott, as our guest speaker for this evening. And uh, Neva, our co-host, is also on board with us. Uh, welcome, you guys. Uh, uh, Scott, would you like to add anything to your introduction? Uh, nope, that, that's pretty much all you need to say. Um, just let me know what you want me to talk about, and we'll take it from there. Well, um, we were talking about uh, disclosure consideration, substitution, uh, unfunded loan agreements, non-existing trusts, um, securitization and bifurcation, and how folks can go identify and prove that the that the so-called trust doesn't exist. All right. So that, that's pretty much where uh, we left off last time you and I talked privately. So please, let everybody else hear what we all talked about. Sure. Well, let's start with the un uh, unfunded loan agreements, because that coincides with the uh, um, lack of disclosure and consideration from the contracting partners that they're one and the same. Um, all right. When the borrower goes to the closing table, they think that they know, they're told who their lender is. They think that that lender is their party providing the uh, source of the funds for their for their note. They sign all the documents, and that's the last they hear everything. They think that everything went, uh, went as appeared. But in the background... What they don't know is that the source of the funds is now from the name of the lender on the note on their note and mortgage. It's just it's just there for its smoke and mirrors. In order for there to be a contract, because that closing is a contract, both parties must perform. You you perform when you sign your note, and the name the lender on the note does not perform because they didn't provide they did not provide the uh, the funding. They came from an unnamed third party. Problem is with that is the title company, your closing agent, knew that the lender named on the note and the mortgage did not provide the source of the funds. If you look at your settlement statement, you'll notice that you paid the escrow agent, the closing agent, to perform the closing. Because you paid money, they had a responsibility to you to notify you of this. If you would have known that the name of the lender on your note and mortgage did not provide any, give you any money, you never would have signed the documents. Top that off, then the escrow agent, the closing agent, went around and they recorded the documents on behalf of the lender through your note and mortgage at your registered deeds office 
knowing that those documents were fraudulent. All right. Yeah, that's very... Is there, is, is there anything... I'm sorry, go ahead, Neva. I said that's very interesting that the escrow agents actually did know they were filing uh, fraudulent documentation. Right, because they, they, they knew it because they received the funds. They received the funds in one of two ways. They received the funds by a wire, or they received the cashier's check, which is, which is over an edit them. Either a wire or a cashier's check. Correct. And to, to prove this, you need to go back. Anybody wants to prove the source of the funds for their, for their transaction is they need to go to their title company or escrow agent, closing agent, and they need to request a copy of the wire confirmation that put that uh, provided the funds for their tra their closing and or a copy of the certified check. Yeah. Now, this used to be a lot easier back in 2008, 2009, but they're catching on to why, you, why people are asking for it, so it's become more difficult. Okay. I, I just wanted to say that, that they're not really, they don't really want to give you this, and I've also spoken to mortgage brokers about the transaction, and they say that five years is all they have to keep records for. That's all they have to keep records for, but now, thanks to the computer and everybody scanning all the documents, they have them. Oh, okay. Uh, so the yeah, well, back then they used to they used to play stupid. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. You know well, what, what are you talking about? So I I would actually have to go. I need a copy of the wire. How was my loan funded? Did they wire the money in? Then I need a copy of the wire confirmation. If they overnighted that certified check, I want a copy of the check. Or did they just drop off a box of money? A suitcase full of money to put my loan. If that case, I want a, a copy of the cash receipt. Right. And then they they figured out I was serious, and I started to get the I started to get these copies of these wire confirmations. And uh, Scott, is the timing of the payment important in this at all? Uh, because I think you were saying is that sometimes these things are funded just on the application signature. Even oh, before you, you actually uh, went to do the closing, you're you're talking about something totally different there. You're getting more into the uh, securitization and how these trusts were allegedly funded. But okay, I don't want to jump ahead. I don't want to jump ahead. We'll, I'll, okay. I'll, we'll wait and we'll bring up that later. Okay. So the the proof that your note was never consummated, the transaction was never consummated, you need to go to your title company or closing agent and get a copy of the either wire confirmation or a copy of the certified check. It'll tell you it'll tell you the name of the bank where the account is and it'll tell you the the account the, the name on the account. The name on the account does not match the lender's name on your note and mortgage. Okay. So what does, that give the, what does that give the average homeowner? That what that tells you is your note was never consummated. It tells you that you don't owe the people, name, you don't own the lender on the mortgage. The people you do owe is the people listed on the note, on the, on the wire confirmation or on the certified check. But at the same time, Scott, you don't have a contract with them. 
correct. You don't need that. You don't need to have a written contract by you by the borrower accepting the fund by act of law. They just they have a, a commit. They have a. It becomes a simple contract under black letter. Correct. Correct. They have they have a commitment to that whoever they took the money from. They owe, they owe whoever they took the money from, even though there's not a written contract. But there's no security either, because that is correct. It is unsecured. Okay. So you could you could theoretically make your payments to the name of the lender on a note and mortgage for thirty years, think that it's all paid off, and in thirty years thirty years later, you know, at the, at the end of the thirty years, the party that the real source of the funds could come after you, demanding their money. In a credit equity. Correct. And they would have a claim. That's a pretty bad, dangerous place to be. Yes, it is. Well, uh, another question I have is with regard to uh, the bankrupt alleged lenders. We have all of these uh, transactions being assigned from a bankrupt entity into a trust that closed already. Right. Now. Uh, no, you're talking about the assignment of mortgage, correct? Yes. All right. That's what you have to look. You need to take the assignment of mortgage, look at the date, not the date that they put in the assignment, the date that the, the date the assignment was signed, because that's when it becomes illegal. Okay. Then you have to look at who's assigning who from what. So like you said, these alleged lenders, pretend lenders, which are nothing more than originators, are assigning the note, our mortgage directly to the trust. Now, there's a couple of things wrong with that. One, the assignment is normally years after the cutoff date of the trust. Right. And two, most, if you read the, the pooling of servicing agreement and the perspectives and the assignment and assumption agreements for these trusts, you will see that these the notes must be assigned to sign, meaning sold, two to three times, I mean, I mean three to four times before it gets into the trust. So there's a, there's a specific chain of custody that that note must follow in order to get into the trust. Yeah. And just to refresh everybody's mind, what are the, what are the names of those parties? You've got the originator, and then you've got... You have an originator... You have purchaser a, a, who becomes the seller, right? A company, you have a seller, and you have an underwriter. And if who's, you read, who's the last party? Who's the what's the name of the last party that goes just before the trust? Uh, the that you'd have to read the prospectus, but I believe it would be the I would believe it would be the seller. And you read the documents, you'll get the name of the lender, you'll get the name of the parties, the company's names, you'll get their addresses, you'll get their phone numbers. And those parties should all be included in any actions that you take against the, against the trust. Okay. So when, when so you, you can get that from you can get that from uh, the SEC website. Yes, the SEC website. Just type in the name of the trust. That's foreclosing on you, 
And you can see it in the perspective. It's in the pooling service agreement. It's in the assignment assumption agreement. You just have to read through. You could do a uh, go to the PDF file, the PDF file, and then just do a search and look for look for assignments. And uh, just say assignment, and it'll take you through everything. It'll walk you right through the whole transaction. All right. So now you've got. We talked just a moment ago about um, the assignment of the mortgage, but that doesn't express anything about where the heck did the note go. Right. Well, we're, we're, I'll get to that. Did you now, talk about that's, that? That's one part. That's one part about the assignment of mortgage. Now, the, the second part about that assignment of mortgage is I, kind of, I glanced over it, but I'll get more specific. It'll say the originator assigned the note to the trust. Now, besides the fact that it's way past the cutoff date, the originator cannot assign the, the mortgage to the trust. They can, but they can't. What I mean by they can't, if they're admitting that they bifurcated, bifurcated the note from the mortgage. They're saying that they assigned the note to the next party of the chain, which is usually the company, but they kept the mortgage. So by doing that, by splitting the note in the mortgage, or maybe they did that, the note connect the note by its bylaws and trust laws cannot be in the trust. The trust if can't. The note is always if the note is always supposed to follow the mortgage. No, the mortgage always I'm follows sorry, the note. I, 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 I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Yeah, the mortgage um, follows the if note. The mortgage is always supposed to follow the note. Is so there some you, unlawful? It, is that also? An admission of an unlawful act. That is correct. No, it's not, that's not unlawful. But they, they can do that. But what they when they did that, they just they made the note unsecured, and they just voided the mortgage. The instant they did that, automatically the note is unsecured and the mortgage is void. And well, what, just because what, what, I'll, I'll, I'm going to ask you this question because you know maybe I'm an idiot. Or maybe there's a lot of people out there that feel like idiots. Why in God's name would they do that? If it would shoot the whole thing in the foot? I guess that's what I, I can't answer that one. I do not know why. And the court would what, what all right, the only reason I can think of, and again this is theory, is they're using that assignment of mortgage to show the courts that they have possession of the note. Which is backwards. But that's what they're using. They're using that assignment of mortgage to show that they have it. They have the note. So they have the smoke, but they don't have the gun. That is correct. <laughs> and the courts are turning a blind eye. Now, also, when you when you read your assignment and assumptions agreements, your PSA, you follow you follow the chain of custody. Now, not always, but usually when you get to the, when the note is supposed to be assigned to the trust, that's, that is where it says that the blank endorsement, which is everybody's using this blank endorsement to do whatever it has to act as bearer bonds. But if you read the PSA and the assignment assumption agreement, it's going to say that once it's assigned to the trust, the trust usually has 30 days to put a, to endorse it, to put a, what's the correct word? 
specific endorsement. So they have to endorse it. They they have to sign a Deutsche Bank or the name of the trust, whoever the trustee is. They have to sign it on behalf of the trust. You made a really good metaphor the other day when we were talking about to help oh. people understand why that endorsement has to happen. Remember right. when we were talking about like a check, cashing a check? Right. A note is no different than a check. It's they're basically, if you look at the UCC code, they're one of the same. And if you take a check, you write it out for cash. Say, I owe you, Greg, I owe you $100. And I just write it out for cash, and I give it over. I, I, I endorse it. I give it to you, and you owe your you owe your, so your neighbor $100, and you say, here it is. You you endorse it. You, you don't even have to endorse it, but you can just give it over to him. But in order for him to get his $100, he has to take it to the bank, and the bank's not going to give him $100 until he endorses it. So there has to be an endorsement by the actual trustee? Is that the issue? If you, if you want to enforce the note, you have to first endorse it. Okay. And none of them are endorsed, by the way. That is correct. They're just the holder. They're not the holder in due course. They're just the holder. If you want to enforce something, if you want to enforce a check, if you want to enforce a note, you first have to endorse it. Other than that, you just see it in your hand. Yep, I can see it. It's good, but I can't, I can't do nothing with it until you put your endorsement on it. Right, which is now the uh, our next T-shirt. Uh, if you don't endorse, you can't enforce. Correct. There you go. In black. Okay. So now, now let's see. Now we can go to the the trusts. The trusts themselves do not exist. Right. Now, anybody anybody that takes a little bit of time can prove it to themselves, and they can get written, they can get written author or written proof that they don't exist. You need to take you need to go to the SEC website and you need to search the trust. You just search in the name of the trust, put your name of the trust in, put a search button, and all the documents for that trust will pop up. And on there it'll say name of the trust, blah blah blah, trust XYZ, registered in the state, it's gonna say the state of New York or the state of Delaware. So then you go to what it says, let's say it says registered in the state of Delaware. You go to the Delaware uh, Department of Finance, the Delaware, in this case it's Delaware Secretary of State's website. And you look up all corporations and trusts. You do a search for corporations, search for trusts, and then you type in the name of the trust again. If that trust is registered in the state, as, it's, as they reported to the SEC, the, they are, then uh, their, their, uh, their registration documents will, will just pop up. It'll say they're in good standing or not in good standing and this and that. What you're going to find is they're not registered. They never were. No, no, no information is going to show. So then you need to, so there you got emails, so you can send a couple of emails to the Secretary of State asking, I'm trying to do a search for this company. They, they, they're reporting to the SEC that they're registered in your state. I can't, I can't do, I can't do, I can't do, I can't find no information. Can you please look it up for me? Don't look it up. They'll send you an email back. Nothing there. All right. Can you, there's nothing there. 
So then you, you, you need to ask them, can you put something in writing for me? Can you send me a letter? They're more than happy to write, send you a letter of attestation stating the fact that the trust is not registered, nor has it ever been registered in this state. It does not exist. And then, to back that up, you need to do a Freedom of Information Act requesting the same information with the state of Delaware. And they're going to send that. They're going to send you documentation stating the same thing. So now you got two two legal documents. You got two documents from uh, two different government agencies for the state that they state that they're that the trust is stating that they're registered in, stating that these trusts do not exist. Why this really brings up is issues is many of these entities that went bankrupt, and that's federal. It's a federal court for bankruptcy lied to the bankruptcy uh, court about these trusts. Oh, yes. And that's why there, that, that brings up something else here. When I, I spoke to a different, uh, attorney that actually got settlements, but they represented pension funds, they, well, they don't go after the trust. They don't go after the lenders. They don't, do, they don't do none of that. What they go after is they go after the underwriter, which is listed in your in your the trust prospectus and PSA agreements. Ah. They, they go after the underwriter, which makes a lot of sense because the underwriter has to go through all the documents and verify that all the documents are in order and that they, and they got to verify that they verify the documents. So they go after the underwriter. Well, what does the underwriter produce then? The underwriter... Con- the underwriter confirms that the notes were bought. The underwriter confirms that the notes went through the chain of custody. The underwriter confirms that the trust is set up, does exist. The underwriter creates the certificates that are sold to the investors. The underwriter does everything. Well, if he does everything, how then... Do, in other words, we've just proven that the trusts don't exist, and now we are proving the trust. Do it. No, no. Well, what I'm saying, they go after the underwriter because the underwriter is the party that's saying that everything was everything was in order. I the see. Underwriter, the underwriter signed off on all these transactions, knowing that knowing that everything was fraudulent. Right, and he's also uh, in, uh, to be an underwriter. Is it, like, is, it, is, is it a sure thing? Is, is it a sure thing that the underwriter knew everything was fraudulent, or is it possible that the underwriter was also defrauded? No, because the the underwriter has to verify everything. They have to get confirmation. And he's they, only using the information that's being provided to him. That is correct. But so it's possible. I'm just I'm just saying for. Or yeah, you're playing you know. devil's advocate. Yeah, it's possible. It, it's very it's possible, highly unlikely. Well, just let's just uh, for as a scenario, we we're going to depose this underwriter. He has got to testify under oath that he did all these documentations, yet none of them produced a trust. Correct. Well, you got you got to understand though too that the underwriter is part of is is part of the chain of custody too. Okay. For the, for the no from the originator to the trust. Okay. So the so the note is supposed to be assigned to the underwriter. And with the guarantee that the borrower has no claim for defenses against the holder of the note. 
So the uh, the underwriter is to the trust what Arthur Anderson was to Enron. Hey, you got it right there, yeah. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. a good analogy. All right, so what should we talk about? All right, uh, Greg, we're talking about um, how we, you were saying before that your notice so before it's even signed. It goes back farther than that. Your note, your note was sold before you even came into a mortgage broker's office to apply for a loan. Right, and then they also stole your identity. That is correct. What happens is, way back when, I had a bunch of loans with this new new lender. Well, they weren't new, but they went national. Um, Franklin Mortgage out of Tennessee. And they provided great, they provided great pricing for us, which as a mortgage broker, a loan officer, that's how you got paid. And that's how rates are determined. So what happens is Wall Street will go out there and say, we're going to sell some mortgage-backed securities here, and we need some loans. We want, say, we want $25 million worth of loans, and then we'll give the underwriting guidelines. We'll say, we want a borrowers with 680 credit score or higher. We want loan-to-values 80% or lower. And we want a debt ratio of no higher than 35%. That's for verified income, verified assets. And we can also get some no asset, no verification of income. But that credit score has to be 750, and we can only go up to 75% debt ratio and so on. So they're going to sell these. They're already generating up these more the securities. They are getting ready to sell to the investors. But now they need the loans. So what they'll do is they'll go out to these mortgage these mortgage companies out there like New Century, Option One, Wells Fargo, Chase. Doesn't make a difference. And they'll say we we need these, and we're willing to pay a hundred fifteen points on it, so a buck fifteen on a dollar. And they wait for the companies to bid on them. So if somebody bids one fourteen, it's yours. Somebody bids one twelve, one ten, until somebody doesn't want to go no lower. Then they, they, that's all they want. Instead of going up, rate or bidding higher, they bid lower. So they'll go and say you won the bid. You got it. You got it at one oh nine. So for every dollar. So for $25 million, we're going to pay you $0.09 cents on top of that, 9% 9% profit. So that's not too bad. They made just under $2.5 million. So they take that 9 points uh, profit there, then they come to the mortgage brokers. We need loans, and then that's how they price the interest rates. So with 80, say, the interest rate's got to be 5%, so they'll come and say, well, we're going to pay you one point at 5%. And the higher the interest rate, the more points they pay. But they need they need a five five points, so they're, they're going to pay you nine. They get nine points, so they're going to pay us a point. And they got to pay their underwriters, they got to pay their security guys, everything else. But outcomes are at nine points. So you come into my office, I say, "Yep, interest rates are five percent." You say, "Great, all right." And you sign the documents, and before they, and your your loans are already sold. It doesn't have a loan number yet. Doesn't have nothing else, but it's sold. It's gone. Um, probably not doing a great job of explaining this, but yeah, that's that's it's gone. It, it's, it's so tell it's, tell, it's, tell the story. Tell the short story of uh, when you asked Franklin for your package back. Oh, 
All right. They, like I said, they, they, when they came out, they were, they were aggressive in pricing. Everybody else paid me one point for a 5% loan. They were paying me two points. And I had probably $1.5 million of loans with these people and locked in for 30 days. And it's like day 21, and I'm calling them up. What's the status? Because my customers are calling me up. They want to know what's going on. You know, it's like, you ain't telling me nothing. I go, I can't. I don't know. I can't tell you nothing because they're not telling me nothing. I go, I called up and found they haven't looked at my loans yet. They haven't even processed them yet. I demanded that they overnight all my loans back to me so I can get them to a different lender. They're responsible. You can't get the kind of pricing from anybody else. I go, I don't care how much you pay me. If you can't close, I don't make nothing. So I came in the next morning, coming to work. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, and I got some guy in a suit sitting outside the door waiting for me to open up. And he comes in, and he goes, I am the president of Franklin Mortgage. <laughs> I go, excuse me? He said, I am the president here, and I heard you had a complaint. You want your loans back. I go, yes. Did you bring him with you? He goes, no, I didn't. So then he had to proceed to tell me how Wall Street works, how the secondary market works, and all this and that, and how his loans, all these loans are already sold. Mm-hmm. And, and that they can't make up the $1.5 million or loans on a short notice. Otherwise, they got to pay a big fine. But it's all right for me to pay a half a point, a quarter point to get a rate lock extension because they can't process, because they can't underwrite my loans at time because they're too busy. So yeah, he proceeded to tell me that your loans are already sold before you even sign it, before you even apply. It's a, it's one big circle. It's one big. It's a big circle, and it's a, all, all deception. And so you had to end up uh, paying a penalty for the delay. Yeah, correct. Now, there's one thing, you know, you got to understand, if these banks were actually lending their money, actually funding your note, there would be no underwriting fee. There would be no processing fee. There would be all these fees would be gone. But that's how they make their money because they, they're not lending no money, but they're making money on fees. So they're charging you through their way too much money. The only thing you should be paying for is appraisal and, and title. And you shouldn't even pay for title because you're paying for the title insurance, and it's in the name of the lenders. It's in the name of the lender. It's a lender policy. It's not a homeowner's policy, but you're paying for it. I don't know. My my title insurance policy has me. You're 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 named on it as the borrower, but it's a lender policy. It protects the lender. It doesn't protect you. So how does one claim against their title insurance policy? You'd have to go and take it up with your title insurance and say, how come, how come this is a lender policy and not a homeowner's policy? You can use it, you know, to say that you got a clean title. But if anything happened with the title, there's had to be a payout, it's going to the lender and not you. Got it. Well, I'm looking at the clock here. If everybody else is okay with this, uh, press star 8 on your telephone to ask Scott some questions. Um, Central New Jersey already has their hand up, and uh, we're going to unmute you, Central New Jersey, and uh, bring you on to the call. I believe it's me, Mike Keene. Well, hi there, Mike. Welcome to the call. Good to hear from you. <laughs> How are you? Doing well. Um, this is Scott, um, our guest for the night, and 
want to know if you had some questions for him. No, I've been listening, and I've been on the whole call. I think he's great. Um, I'm curious, Scott, where do you practice? I, you're a mortgage, uh, former mortgage lender, are you? Uh, mortgage broker. Right. Uh, what state were you? Uh, did you have your business? Uh, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, I'm curious. Would you be willing? I was listening. I was, uh, my case is unusual. I was defrauded uh, as part of a larger scheme to defraud two banks and an insurance company on a house that was lar- that was that was likely uh, destroyed through arson. Okay. And it's a bold statement, and I'll back it up by saying that the attorney that we paid to represent us was involved in the fraud and he died in 2011 and I walked into his office and they handed me the file okay with the evidence intact it shows the notes of a conspiracy back and forth and it also shows the math and so on and so forth and I was you, you, you did a great job and I'm a builder and I just came down off a couple of roofs all day I'm a little tired, and I'm uh, right in the middle of New Jersey where the storm hit. So lately, my life has become very chaotic. Sure. Uh, and uh, I'm just after telling Greg, the host of the call, that my flip phone fell into a paint bucket about a week ago, and I'm just salvaging names and numbers now. So it's been uh, been very confusing. So here's what I was going to ask you: Would you, uh, when you were saying? In an effort to track where the money came from, mm-hmm. we should request a wire confirmation from the title company. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, if you're in New Jersey, uh, I'm not quite sure here. Is, does the title company do the closing, or does it, do they have an aspiration to do the closing? Well, it turns out that the seller's law firm did the closing paperwork. Okay. And they're also uh, involved in this fraud. All right. Where was escrow set up? The escrow was set up through my attorney, insofar as I know. So you're, you're, what you're telling me is that the funds were wired into your attorney's account, escrow account? I believe so. So that he would have a copy of the wire confirmation. I think I do have that. All right. And that would tell you the name of that would tell you what it would tell you is the source of the funds, who was ever on the account, and it'll tell you the name of the bank that the sort that the funds came from, where the account is. Okay. Well, here's another interesting wrinkle for you. Okay. So, I have the actual name and the actual credit card statement of the actual banker that defrauded my family. And in the margin of his credit card statement, it shows his handwritten math that describes what he did, the math, and it shows his own personal credit card as having been used as tertiary financing to $43,000 worth of the loan. Okay. So you're so what you have, uh, understanding correctly, you are saying 
were two separate loans, a first and a second, or are you saying that he pooled money from two different sources? Well, this is what I believe happened. And this is where I think that my case has legs. And I also think that once it gets out there, people are going to realize how depraved this whole situation is. It turns out that this fella, whose credit card I now have, he masqueraded as the lender the whole time. Okay. When, in fact, he worked for the bank that owned the burned house. Okay. So, as an employee of the bank that owned the burned house, he used his personal credit card to fund and thereby replenish the earnest money that my wife and I put down. And I've done the math, it works out almost to $37.50. So what they did is, I believe, they intentionally burned the house prior to my involvement with it, Mm -hmm. after they took a $200,000 equity lien against it. Right. And then they used this banker, who was their friend, Uh, to intercept the insurance money, because I know now that they did have insurance and they did take a claim on the fire. Right. Whereas they told me there was no insurance and I used my own funds to to refurbish, to to renovate the house. Mm. They would have had to have insurance to have that to get a line of equity. That's right. They lied to me and said there was no lien on the property. Okay. And when I first discussed it with these people who I believed were family friends, they said to me, uh, we're going to introduce you to our personal banker friend. And I spoke to this fellow and I said, can you provide a loan on this house despite the fact it was destroyed by fire? And he said, yes. He says, I can give you a, a loan on the house because there's more than enough value in the land. Uh, that makes sense, yep. And I said, okay, well, that's great. So we we signed a contract that said the house is being sold as is, and I was promised a single mortgage. Okay. I got a contract, I got an attorney, and so on and so forth. And then uh, about six or eight months in, they said, well, wait a minute. The loan we promised you was never, uh, was never brought to fruition. It, 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 it never worked out. So now you have to sign three loans at closing or lien the property to recover the money you invested up to that point, some $80,000. All right, back, back up there. You said after six, eight, six months after you closed? Six months prior okay. to uh, Before the closing, I had been working on the house using my own money oh, right, to renovate okay. it. Some people will say I volunteered my time, but that's not true. We had a contract. We had earnest money down, and we were promised a single mortgage. They waited until I was invested up to $80,000 in the property before they pulled the rug out from underneath me. Right. And at that point, they said, listen, you either sign three mortgages or you'll be forced to lien the property to recover your investment up to that point. Right. Now, here's the kicker. Not only did they have their personal friend that worked for the bank that owned the insurance and the lien on the burned house, 
but you also had a brother-in-law who shares my exact name and my exact age. Okay. So they obviously used him to steal my identity and my work product. My own attorney, I now have evidence that he forged documents in my name. I can believe that. First off, I believe they were all in on it together because it doesn't take... If they told you you can get... He had no problem getting a loan. Why did it take six to eight months? Especially if they were going to loan based on the value of the land. That's exactly right. And they said it would take three months to get the mortgage. It took almost six months to get the mortgage. And then when I started to look at this after the attorney's file came into my possession, they perpetrated appraisal fraud because they claimed the house was in saleable condition uh, prior to, put it this way, at the closing, they claim the house is in saleable condition, which is altogether untrue. Correct. And my yeah. wife and I, my wife and I saved every check of every capital improvement that we put into the property, and I did all the work myself with my own two hands. So Scott, uh, Mike, um, I I just want to jump in here quick, if you don't mind, please. I'm just trying to watch the clock. Uh, yeah. and be conscientious for everybody else. Right, and um, I'm sorry. You're right. And I get a little no, long-winded no, because this, this wears me out, this whole thing. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I mean we can only yeah, accomplish so much in, in, a, in a weekly phone call. Um, so here's my question. I'll cut to the if you guys, If you guys are fine with it, um, I can hook the two of you up so that you can have offline conversations about this further. That would be delightful. That's exactly where I was going to go, and I was going to ask Scott, um, because I have an attorney now, and he sees what what I've been trying to explain now for almost four years. And uh, there's a leap of faith with these attorneys because they, they look at you and they say, well, wait a minute, you're in foreclosure, you're trying to get a free house or whatever, and so on. So, so I was going to ask Scott if he could give, as he explained so well before, I wonder if he would give a step-by-step -step process, and would he be willing to post it on Living Lies? Process to... Not on living lies. Process for? To show how you would chase down, uh, as you were describing earlier, the title company, certified oh. check, requested uh, a wire transfer. I've, I've done that many times on living lies. Yeah, I just, well, it, it actually, I'd be delighted if you'd send to me an email, and maybe Greg will set that up, and I appreciate sure. that. Sure. And uh, I'd like my attorney to get involved at, at that point, too. And, and you seem to me to be an asset. I'm going to pursue this because I've had enough of these people, and I want them destroyed utterly. So, And thank you right, very cool. much, by the way, while we're on the subject. All righty. Um, let's go to Central Illinois. You're next in line. You just unmuted me again. <laughs> I just unmuted everybody again. <laughs> you have too much power. <laughs> no, I just, you know, it's just a stupid little thing where you click on stuff. Anyway. Sorry, this is Kathy. Uh, I was inconvenient when you unmuted, unmuted me. Um, oh, well, we apologize. <laughs> My we, haven't, we, haven't, we haven't connected with the uh, CIA satellite network yet, so we can, uh, you know, look at you through your house. <laughs> 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 you know, I did hear that about the phones uh, with black <laughs> But listen, 
there should have been two insurance policies when you purchase the property. The, the homeowner's title insurance policy and the lender's title insurance policy. Correct. I, I agree with you. Okay, so if there were pre-existing problems on the title prior to closing, you would have been covered. That is correct. And the lender would have been covered both. Two policies. All right. Yeah, it, it depends. It de- All right, I agree with you. There's supposed to be two policies. But I know in Wisconsin there was only one policy. It was always the lender policy, and the borrower has always got a copy of the lender's policy. Okay, well, in Illinois... You were it was you're required by law to offer them the your the lender's policy was required by the lender. Correct. The homeowner's policy was optional. Okay. And I would think that anyone that you know, you're buying a home, you haven't laid your eyes on those documents yet for the mm-hmm. title from the abstract title, you would buy a homeowner's policy at the when you purchase that property. Correct. And like, like I said, in Wisconsin, they're, they're charged for it, but they're not getting it. I can't, I can't, well, speak, I can't speak for Illinois, because I know in Wisconsin, you, when the homeowner got their, their insurance, they got a copy of title insurance from a mortgage broker or a lender, if the lender gave it to them. But it was always a copy of the lender's policy, not the borrower's policy, homeowner policy. Well, here in Illinois, the homeowner's policy comes by mail after the closing, usually three weeks after closing. Okay. Uh, In this particular case, it was American title. Um, So, you know, if there's a problem with the title, you know, you've got the lender's policy and you've got the homeowner's policy. Yep. That's double payment. Correct, yep. Does that seem right, that they're double-dipping? They sure are. Now, I know know that I wasn't a borrower, but I know daggone well I had a right to go after the title insurance, the homeowner's title insurance policy. I also knew that the lender... The lender's policy that was paid for had a right to collect on the lender's policy. Correct. So, yeah, but for folk, Kathy, for those that are new on the call or just for the sake of the recording, um, let everybody know why you have a special circumstance. Just briefly. Well, it was because at closing, instead, in lieu of the warranty deed here in Illinois, Greg, my husband. Uh-huh. They they filed a trust deed with my husband's name on it. Trust deeds and not are yours. Correct. It was my husband's name and the law firm that represented the deceased seller's estate. Okay. The the, the sellers owned the property free and clear. They held it in a revocable living trust. They both passed away. Their attorney was handling the estate. But upon their, the, upon his death, um, his wife passed away before him, and upon his death, their oldest daughter became the trustee, and the revocable state became irrevocable, meaning it had to be settled. Right, yep. Okay, well, 
the parents' attorney didn't settle the estate, they left the trust open. So two years afterwards, when I get tired of dickering around with the uh, pretender lender mortgage company that was on the note, um, then the countrywide servicer, then the countrywide bank, then all the way through Bank of America and everyone, multiple parties basically making the same claims. Yep. So, you know, I, I went straight to uh, the top, started asking questions from the other end because I don't do business with people like this. Right, yep. <laughs> and that's when I found out that um, I wasn't going to be able to take out a loan in my name to purchase this property that wasn't in my name that I warranted under a warranty deed for the estate. And that's when I found out about the title, about all the payoff issues prior to, before, during, and after closing. Now, when there's a document filed at the county recorder's office that um, has no validity, um, it means it has no force behind it. It means nothing. Right. And if 20 documents filed behind it based upon that being a valid document, they're all void. That is correct. And that is correct. So yep. at the closing table, the one thing I knew was I seen the checks. I seen the checks that got cut to the realtors, and I seen the checks that got cut to the two daughters, the two heirs of the deceased of seller's estate. So I knew that all the cash had gone paid out. And I and I saw the warrant uh, a warranty deed uh, at the closing table, and because I recall getting a call from Dan before closing, and said, "Kathy, you make sure that warranty deed has both yours and Ray's name on it." And of course, first thing I asked to see was the warranty deed. Well, it's somewhere yada 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 yada. Well, you know, I want you to remember, Greg, that I had only been training 30 days to close loans for them and do title abstracts for them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I knew nothing at the closing table. Um, but what I realized two years later anyway, when I went to get the loan, was that the uh, seller's estate, the C seller's estate, their trust was still open. So I contacted Vicki because this is a community, you know, where families live there their whole life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and I knew, I knew how to contact them. All the neighbors knew these girls well because they grew up with them. And so we contacted Vicki. Vicki contacted her parents' attorney. And then Vicki had to hire her own attorney for, to represent her and her sister. Mm -hmm. What her parents' attorney had done she found out that her parents' trust was still open and that there was a contract for deed sale between our estate and her parents' estate in, through their trust. Huh? <laughs> so I'm sitting here going, where's the warranty deeds? Where's the warranty deeds? First of all, where's the warranty deed from the seller's estate to my husband and I? Right. Where's the warranty deed that you that you showed me at closing where my husband and I granted the warranty deed to the capital asset company? Let's say um, first capital asset and the lender was first advantage lender. Okay. So the lookalike names. And so 
I got and when I realized that he got the property by trust deed, we didn't take the property by warranty deed. The tax bill was in both our names. And I um I decided, well, I'm going to go talk to my lawyer because I'm not going to, these guys are blackmailing me. They stole $5,000 and they're saying I owe it and they want me to repay it off with the payoff. Yeah. Of course, I'm not going to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So the lawyer started working on, you know, the tracking money because I was, I started on the, where's my title? You know, how can you sue me for something I didn't have, that I didn't receive? And how could I transfer by warranty deed the title to this property to the capital asset company whose associate long-arm business partner, the pretender lender, funded the loan? Well, I'm trying to figure out how did you get a loan on the property with all that out there? Well, see, that that's, that's why I think that the problem was that's why the, the the seller's estate's attorney set up the contract for deed because the deceased sellers, they had, like I said, the trust had been established for years, a, a revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they, that's what he did was he hid the fact that they couldn't get my husband and I clear title at closing. And so, my, you know, I kept asking, well, where'd the money come from? Where'd the money come from? Sounds like he didn't know what he was doing because even though the trust was still open, he said they could still sell the property out of it. Well, exactly. So I wanted to know, well, where'd the money come from and whose money was it and who actually took title to the property? Or where's the trustee agreement that gave the trustee that granted the grant deed? Correct. You're on the right path. Um, When you issue a trust deed... There has to be a trustee agreement. Correct. And so, well, Scott, first thing well, Scott, go ahead. Go, Scott, go ahead and uh, give her what you think. She's on the right track. There's got to be a trust agreement. And as far as the money, where did the money come or go, there should be records in an escrow account. Well, <laughs> like most people ran into, the actual title company that closed is no longer in business. All right. Did they, did they just close the doors, or did they were they bought out? Well, they they moved the files across town. American Title did to another title company, who claimed that they only kept the records back five years, and that those that were transferred to them came with incomplete records. <laughs> now, you know, court. My attorney, she's she's a prosecutor now, but she she um, you know she. she she knew about the wire transfer from the cashier's checks. Yep. And she, we, we figured out early on that the party that funded the loan was not the party named on the note. Why in tarnations would we grant a warranty deed? And then when I started to put all this together with MERS, and I, the only thing that kept going through my mind is they're forging warranty deeds. They're forging warranty deeds because... There's no way if these trusts don't exist because the private placement mortgages, if they were under 220, there, the structure there was, hold on a second, I tell you, dogs stop barking. No bark! The, the, the structure required um, two trusts, 
And if the first trust didn't exist, then the second one surely couldn't exist to be registered. And where were the two warranty deeds? Where were the missing warranty deeds? Well, just because so, the first trust doesn't exist, doesn't mean the second trust doesn't exist. Well, correct. I'm just saying that what filed, like there's a trust deed that was filed. It was granted to my husband and the seller's uh, attorney's office, the deceased seller's attorney's office, and there's no trustee agreement. We've never been able to get that trustee agreement. All right. This is what you, you sue everybody. Well, that's what we did. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. I left them sorted out. Um, it's, if you'll, here's the problem, Greg. Nobody steps forward to say anything. The everyone in, everyone has a want of knowledge. The attorneys for the uh, title company should be sorting this out for you. Well, um, and actually, that's basically is what we're going for because at closing we purchased the homeowner's policy and the lender's policy. Mm-hmm. And so that homeowner's policy was effective the day of closing. You can't tell me. But the day of closing, they filed, they filed a trust deed instead of a warranty deed. They filed it without the trustee agreement, which means it has no validity, which means the mortgage and everything else that followed after it is a nullity. Because right. that's what you were getting on the trail. You can't mortgage what you don't own. Right. So... Now, that's where the contracts for deeds are coming in. And, Greg, you and I are in Illinois, so we both know that when you purchase a property, you take it by warranty deed. Right. And how many of us over the years ever went down, go down to the recorder's office to make sure that warranty deed is filed? Um, I did. I actually, no, actually, you know, just in response to that question, we actually, you know, not realizing that... A deed issued by a seller is an offer, and until you actually accept it, it's out there floating in space. Right, and, and acceptance so is years, years later, years later, we figured out that I had to issue an acceptance of the deed. Mm-hmm. And we have that all done and recorded that at the county recorder's office as well. You know, well, prior to the foreclosure nonsense. What if they what if they what if they reconveyed the deed after you granted it to them? Well, no. This How do you know what you got back was has any or what you filed has any legal effect? Because remember how we talked about that the seller can only transfer and convey the rights that they have. And I asked Correct. you one day, right? How do you know what deed. rights the seller? or the trustee for the seller's estate. All right, everybody. Uh, we're going to cut off the uh, pre-recorded uh, segment of the call right here and right now. If you would like to hear the rest of the question and answer portion of this call, go back to episode number 015. That would be episode 15. Um so what we're going to do is open up the uh, board for everybody on the call. Um, guest 15, Roddy, whoever else, uh, you're all alive. And uh, let's get going on some questions and answers and comments. What do you guys have to say? I have a question, Greg. Question. 
Yes. Am I on mute? This is this is Deb. Um, I I sent out a, a FCGPA letter, if I said that right anyway, and I got this letter back from um, HSBC and PHH. You know, with unsigned, of course, they're always unsigned, and um, they send me a letter stating that. Um, this Aquan is supposed to be my uh, master servicer, if you will, but I, I checked the address. But I know that the address they sent me because is wrong because I know it's GMAC. And I also know that um, they returned the letter I sent, quote, to Aquan at that address. So that was a false thing from a QWR response. Well, on the back of this letter, of course, it says that they are, of course, a debt collector, right? And they have no standing. And they said, important message. This is an attempt to collect the debt, any information, of blah, blah. Okay, however, to the extent of your original obligation, now, they don't have any standing, has been discharged, we knew this, or is subject to an automatic stay, blah, blah. Okay, and then it says, um, this notice is for compliance and or for informational purposes only and is notice of the creditor's intent to enforce a lien against the property and does not constitute a demand for payment or an attempt to impose personal liability for such an obligation. What is that supposed to be? Unsigned letter that it is? Void where prohibited by law. What And what does that mean? It's void. It's, it's no good. It's void where prohibited by law. Okay. In other words, they can say all that nonsense, but it is void where prohibited by law. So what what is my response to that in that in any case? They're supposed to be responding to me from a letter that I gave them notice on. And this is what I get. Do you want me to be serious or flippant? Be serious. Because I'm really, you know, itching to do something flippant. <laughs> well, you can say both. I don't care. You know, send them a, a copy of, uh, you know, some fairy tale and ask them to respond. <laughs> ask them to respond. Right. I mean, That's just your take flippant some, one. <laughs> you know, just take, you know, just take a direct quote out of Grimm's fairy tales you know, <laughs> and send it to them and ask them to respond to it. Okay, and don't you sign know. it. No, cited so having notarized and everything, and say so I require a response. You know, mm -hmm. and just because it's it's just as bullshit. Sorry. Okay. Well, it's and not I'm, signed, um, and they never are anyway. So. Well, you know, but that's that's my flippant answer. <laughs> okay. You know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but don't do that. <laughs> you know, but uh, if you got a couple thousand dollars to hire a lawyer, go ahead. You know. <laughs> Send them a bullshit answer because they gave you a bullshit statement. Yes. <laughs> there are, you know, they gave you all the disclaimers, but they didn't explain to you their right to make a claim. They don't have a right to make a claim. No, but they gave you all the proper disclaimers. You right, know, right. It's like, you could just, why don't you go just, just go quote the United States Constitution and send it to them and say, here, why don't you answer that? Right. It's it you know it's just it's part of the game. It's like reading the the little fine print on the bottom of a warranty statement when you buy a new refrigerator, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's all they sent you is the warranty statement. You know the the limitations of the warranty. 
You know, they, don't, they didn't send you a real claim. They didn't tell you anything that they can actually act upon. They're asking you to commit yourself to go out there and make an argument of something that they don't have an argument for. And, and this is the trick of the trade of all the lawyers that work for these big outfits. It's mm-hmm. let's, conf- let's frighten these folks to think that they have to open their mouth and confess to something that we have no proof of. But if we can get them to say something in their response that would prove up in court, then we can get them. You know, and most most Americans are honest people and will then go out and say, well, we really don't understand this claim because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then you go and give that to them. They don't have that. Otherwise, otherwise they would send you that list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They don't have it. And so it's all it's all a mind game to get you to confess to being guilty. Because, you know, in the Jewish Christian tradition of America, we are all guilty. Mm-hmm. And we all want to be guilty because then we can be forgiven. And for some reason, the only thing that we think of is we want forgiveness. And what if, what if you were never guilty in the first place? What if you no. don't... Need- there's no default. And then the other thing they send is, on top of that, I get this escrow statement. Is this, is this just the time of year that you do this? Is this just what? Do they do these things at certain times of the year? They do these things... Uh, oh, gosh. I don't want to give away next week's show, but next week's show is going to be killer. Um... I have been studying with a gentleman who's a former uh, primary and secondary capital banker, retired, for the past week and a half. And it's been mind-numbing. To the point where I've decided to stop my particular language in my federal lawsuit to consider a completely different tack on how to do it. It's really really knocked my, my doors off and impressed the hell out of me. Wow. Um, All right. That's just on a personal level. But what I'm coming to be aware of, as we were always told as kids, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want your house, or do you want ten times the value of the investment given to you in a check from the people who stole it from you? Think about that. If you can get $300,000 and your house free and clear and title cleared on a quiet title action, that's what you get. Well, what if you can get $3 million and you can go and move anywhere the hell you want and let them keep the damn property? All right, now that's, okay. where, that's where I'm starting to go. Um just in terms of my new education and I'm not trying to tell anybody that that's what they ought to do I'm just saying that we all have choices and there are more than one way to skin a cat and well you're, you're right because I mean as I was listening to the, the video from the party that you had on last week and I learned that note and promissory are never in the same sentence much less on the same page because there really is no promissory note it doesn't exist it's a note because it's a draft it's a check 
And I also learned that they, from something that uh, Neil had on about when they put on the bottom of that, quote, thing, because you never got a cashier's check, we never got a money order, we never got a wire transfer, and we never got any cash, that when they, they're not supposed to put without recourse, but they put without recourse. Well, here's the problem. If we claim any element of fraud on any of the things we're doing, it vitiates the entire deal. And when I say the entire deal, I'm not talking about your note and your mortgage. I'm talking about the entire infrastructure of the banking system behind the scenes. So, if they owe you $5 million and you claim fraud on your mortgage, you lose your claim to that $5 million. Is that right? Got it. Got it? I think so. The judge will throw you out. He goes, oh, you're, you're, call, you're, you're, you're saying it's fraud. Okay, fine, it's fraud. And get out of here because you're arguing the wrong point. You're, you're arguing it from the position of a debtor and not from the position of a creditor. Okay. And, okay. and according to this gentleman who's been giving me this little 411, all the judges have been briefed on this particular issue. I heard that that was true with the Secretary of State, too, that they were briefed on some issues. They're, they're not all rocket scientist geniuses, but they've been briefed on what to do and how to recognize when an American shows up in court with the proper claim. And if you don't show up with the proper claim, they kick you out as, you know, an indebted uh, subject. There you go. We'll so talk next later. Week, next okay. week's call. Okay. Next week's call is going to be quite interesting. Okay, I'm, I'm interested. After what I've learned about the note that doesn't exist and and uh, the deed of trust is void, I'm interested. Now this escrow thing and this and she's talking. Kathy's talking about warranty deeds and it, isn't it interesting how they get a stronghold on your life? No, think about this. Think about uh, the whole Teela rescission concept, right? Mm-hmm. You know, three days, three years, whatever. What if you found out that the note was basically forgiven or or terminated 180 days after you signed it, and they used it as an off-book asset to create another whole different little banking system in the shadow banking system, and they used the mortgage recorded on your county record as a ghost image of what had existed, but it really doesn't anymore. And that by the time you figure all this stuff out, you're going to be dead or sell the house. Now, now my other question, and I don't want to take anybody's time too much, but when they when they give you another loan number and they 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 come up with another note, that's another whole account, right? Yeah, because they canceled the original note. They canceled. Okay. 180 days after you signed it. Oh, well, there it is. Okay. So when they foreclose on the note and mortgage, they're foreclosing on a note that doesn't exist. You don't know to tell the judge that the note doesn't exist. 
because you don't have the paperwork to back it up. And you, you've never been shown that. And at least if you charge that, then in discovery, you could pr bring that to court. And the trick is going to be showing folks how on the HUD-1 statement, it declares that they paid off all the previous debts on, on the property pertaining to that note in the mortgage. And in fact, there are no proofs by check, wire transfer, or receipt that they ever did. And that they did it by percentages, and they played games and leveraged um, large accounts that existed out there in the ether in Wall Street that you don't know about. And those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about next week. Wow. Uh, okay. All right. And so how can you rescind a mortgage that doesn't exist? Think about that. If you do, you're admitting that it exists. So they continue on the foreclosure case against you because you just said it exists. They didn't say it existed. They just presented some papers. They didn't have right. any evidence. Or anything. It was just, okay, here, we're going to do this. And uh, they wait for you to go and pretend to believe that they're real. If you actually challenge the reality of those documents at the beginning and say, hey, this has been dissolved and it doesn't exist, and I'm the investor in this property and my bills are unpaid, my commitments are unpaid that you promised to take care of, so now I'm the creditor and you're the debtor. How about it? Mm-hmm. So next week is going to be pretty awesome. I'm going to try to keep it to two hours, but God only knows. Thank you, sir. All right. All righty. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I thought I had uh, North Carolina. Are you on the call? Hello, Hello. Mr. Goose. Hello. Hello, North Carolina. Yeah, this is... <laughs> This is North Carolina. I have um, I remember this call and and um, and I'm glad you replayed it tonight because um, it, it spurred some thinking in me, which is um, the original payoff on my on the uh, on the note in question um, may have been mistakenly paid by the wrong party, and I wouldn't say it's a fraud, but um, but I want what I want to do is is first follow up with the I'm going to call it um, the, the original lender, which is Wells Fargo, and get them to document, um, you know, the exact name of the, of the party that you know the funds came from, or and then possibly trace that back to the escrow account it came from and title insurance or title, you know, title company, title insurance policies, stuff like that. But um, so I guess my question is. Would you recommend a certain language to use? One that I can document this oh, in a proper don't. way. And two, and two uh, please two. don't ask to recommend anything because that would be very close to legal advice. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm just wondering what language you might use yourself if you were wanting to document something and 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 let someone know that this is a it's a real request. It's not just a frivolous whatever casual kind of request that I'd like to take action, but I don't want to alarm them to the point where they think they're getting an audit. Well, first of all, I never make statements. I only ask questions. Okay. 
You know, a question is not admissible evidence, a statement is. So I answer everything with a question. Because for the life of me, when it comes to the legal system, I have no idea what they're really asking me. So I have uh-huh. to ask a question in response to a question because even though it might seem clear on its face in, you know, the uh, mountains of North Carolina, in the vernacular, it's got nothing to do with what the lawyers are doing. So I can't possibly understand what they're asking me, so I always have to return it with a question. Mm. All right, that, that's one of the basic things that I always adhere to. I cannot admit to anything that I don't understand. And until you can convince me that I understand it, I'm going to have to keep asking you questions, even if it drives you crazy. All right, so that's a general general policy that I adhere to. Um, With respect to trying to figure out Who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third with regard to your particular deal. Um, You need to do interrogatories and ask questions and get to the bottom of those things and get people to answer your questions. So it's a matter of framing your questions to get to the answers that you need. And sometimes you need to ask several questions in different ways that force them to answer the same question even though they don't recognize they're asking them the same thing. And that was one of the skills that I learned in market research. I can ask you three questions. You think they're three separate questions, but I'm asking you the same thing. All right? And... The purpose of that is to find out if you're lying or telling the truth. And you have to learn how to do that. And I can't just impart that to people by just saying that that's what you have to do. I had years of training to get to that point. Um, and I don't hire out to do that service for other people. Everybody's Everybody can go do that for themselves. Anything else? Well, so I think is the first round of questions should be easy, easy to get, easy to turn around, because there there would be no threat, there would be no mention of the word interrogatory. I just I want to document um, the payoff on, on the date. Uh, you know, in other words, sort of start from ground zero, the date that the uh, the parties. And um, but what I just want to see if there's a mismatch in the. Um, and who set the funds? And I, well, what, I believe there is, but I, I want to just document that. Well, why, why, why don't you start asking questions like a like a like a eighth grader? Are you the real creditor in this case? Do you have anything to show me that you are the real creditor in this case? Is there anybody behind you who might be another creditor that is not being disclosed to me today? You mean did Wells Fargo modifies this by loan what, back in back? By what means, by what means and what legal device did you establish yourself as a cre- as the creditor to make a claim in this case? 
please explain. Thank you. North Carolina. Okay. Sometimes everybody wants to be so sharp and so like a little lawyer, they don't know how to just ask stupid questions. I mean, stupid sounding questions like if like they're a kid to- would. Like yeah. a kid would. What's that? How did you do yeah. that? <laughs> mommy, no. mommy, why does he have curly hair and he has straight hair? You know, shit like that. You know, if you no, don't I'll understand something, if you really don't understand something, and then you go and read lots of stuff trying to understand something, and now you want to impress your friends and neighbors by, look how much I've read. You still don't understand it because, by gosh, they didn't make it that easy for you. So don't do it. Ask questions like a child. Drives crazy. So the smartest thing to do. Thank you. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's just my thoughts. It's so well, basic. It's so basic. It's just too easy. And they still owe you a damn answer. And you're going to drive these sophisticated lawyers out of their minds because they want you to attack them with 10,000 paragraphs and 15 different legal citations. And all you're going to say is, Sir, why did my goldfish die? Right? And the lawyer's going to go, What the hell? What do you mean, why did the goldfish die? I said, well, that's the issue here, right? The goldfish died. You know, sir, why did my goldfish die? You know? Now, now you put all the burden on them because you're asking stupid, simple, you know, childhood questions. And if you learn to ask questions like a child, then you're going to get to expose all the bullshit of the grown-ups trying to lie and cheat you. All right? Yeah, I like that. Uh, so I think I could weigh into this if I just ask one question a week over the course of six weeks. I might get six, you know, get into it in a deep, deeper way. But or I might just get one answer. Who knows? But um, maybe it takes two weeks. But in any case, do you know how how I go about um, uh, using the title insurance policy? If there was say there was a mistake, not and not a fraud, but a mistake in this. Um, in this case, um, and that's not what you're talking about when you say get ten times the value. But um, I'd be okay with a dollar for a dollar kind of thing. But um, oh, I'm not going to be giving you an answer. I'm not going to be giving you any response on that. Um, for the sake of it, this is effectively kind of a teaser for next week's call. Yeah. All right. You got because my attention. I'll I'll be I'll be here. The gentleman that was supposed to be on the show tonight was wired an airplane ticket and dragged to Washington, D.C. to testify with a bunch of CPAs and lawyers. Now he'll be back next week for the program. All right, and otherwise he would have been on the show tonight. All right? He's, he's not a slow hand in this deal. So when when I bring good guests to the show that have 
a diverse set of experience and a diverse set of knowledge. You know, it's always been a policy of the Gallant Goose and Friends to not take sides or make opinions about whether or not one thing is better than another thing. Our entire purpose has been to expose the American people to all possibilities so that they can make intelligent decisions. Alright? I try to vet our guests to make sure that they're authentic, but beyond that, I can't tell you which one is right or wrong. Why the heck do you have an election where you've got you're going to have a choice right now uh, between two candidates where they're going to let you choose between having a poisonous snake shoved down your throat or a poisonous snake shoved up your ass. <laughs> All right? And that's what you pick because you, you, America, you sat on your hands and sat on your ass and let two groups of, you know, they always argue about what do they call them? <coughs> Special interest groups. All right? Oh, the Democrats and the Republicans. Oh, we hate special interest groups. Well, for God's sakes, people, the Democrats and Republicans are special interest groups. <laughs> and you've let these two special interest groups take over your bloody country. Why are there not 10,000 or 100 or 15 different political parties. Why? Because you decided to just play McDonald's versus Burger King. You decided to play Coca-Cola versus Pepsi. And on and on it goes. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a political soapbox statement here, but for God's sakes... You are being forced to make a decision that is an unconscionable decision. Why? Because you sat on your ass, watched Dancing with the Stars, had 356 channels on your cable, and when you got home from work, the last thing you wanted to do was thinking about running your country. You wanted to just get lazy, get drunk, and get laid. There you go. Thank you, America. Wake up. I'm done. Got it all out now. <laughs> I, I, I've been itching to say that for some time. Feel better? Yeah, I do. I need some toilet paper. That's a joke. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Goose. If nobody else has got anything to add on the chat board or on the call, I'm going to say please pass the word along that next week's show is going to knock you out of the ballpark. It's going to make the All-Star game look like a bunch of little leaguers. This is going to be a remarkable brain reset. And we're going to try our very best to make it into a digestible form. We may actually have to do two or three calls with this gentleman because the information is just so nuts. It's like trying to talk to a CPA that was trying to balance the books of the United States government. All right? It's crazy. All right? So 
on that note, I'm going to say thank you, everybody. Love you all. Uh, please pass the word along, and uh, we will see you all next week here on the Gallant Goose and Friends. Um, and please pass the word along because this is going to be a fun one. All right, guys. Okay. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Good night. Thank you. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com. Program number 139-335. This is Big Papa Stampley reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois In a place they call Chicago I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago Now see I was still on the city streets With a song to ride But I'm here to tell my story South side in the zone they call the valley. For fun, we bought penny candy, chase rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city street with a strong Seven, daddy worked two jobs. Mama held it together. Walked a mile to school, had to fight every day. Sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes it took away. A decision. I always knew I would be a musician. No drugging or thugging. Doctor, no lawyer for me. I'm gonna play this guitar or I'm gonna lick the same way. I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago.
sublime. I used to run with the sun. 